I'm Mark Laberton, president of Fuller Theological Seminary. Welcome to Conversing. It's my great pleasure today to welcome Dr. Andy Root to Conversing. Andy is a professor at Luther Seminary. He occupies the Carrie Olson Balson Professor of Youth and Family Ministry Chair. So I'm delighted to welcome you and thank you for being part of Conversing. Oh, it's great to be on here. Thank you so much. So it's worth noting, uh, as the president of Fuller, that you're a Fuller alum. I'm glad about that. And I'm especially glad about it in this case, because I feel like the work you're doing is really great work. And we're happy <laughs> to let any of that be associated in one way or another with Fuller. So, Oh, no, so it's thanks. great. I have fond memories of Fuller. And it uh, was an important place in my own background, both to becoming a thinker as well as just uh, my faith life. So it's, uh, it's a real pleasure to be on here. I'm glad. Well, tell people a little bit about your work and in particular kind of the meta project, I'll call it, that you're engaged in because you've written 16-some books and you are at work in a really rich field that I think needs the kind of attention that you're giving it. And I don't know that that there are many people that are giving it anywhere near the kind of care that I think you are. So just describe to people sort of the, the intellectual, academic, and really in a way theological and personal project that you're engaged in. Yeah, well, it's really interesting because it, it goes back to my days at Fuller when I was an MDiv student in 97 to 2000. And coming to Fuller really as a, coming out of a, a Christian college, growing up in a conservative Lutheran congregation and, and really looking for my own theological voice and stumbling into Ray Anderson's systematic All classes. Right. And in that many ways, that, uh, a lot of people. that got me going mm-hmm. um, when I was there. But the big question that I've really tried to, to wrestle with, which I think was embedded even in those, those lectures that Ray gave way back in the day, was really thinking about how is it that people encounter concretely the presence of God, and how is it that people encounter revelation. And so that's really been my big objective over all my work is to try to to lean into that. And I've tended to do that through younger populations of people just because there's a lot of freedom in that and there's a lot of unique thinking, but that's been my big pursuit. Isaiah Berlin, the, the Oxford philosopher, says that there's two kinds of philosophers or two kinds of thinkers. There's hedgehogs and there's foxes, and foxes know many things, and hedgehogs know just one thing. And I think all my work is really just one one thing. I would definitely count myself as a as a hedgehog, and I've just been really trying to get to this question of how is it within our cultural context that people encounter the living presence of Jesus Christ, and what does that look like, and how do we take on practices to to affirm that and lean into that, and and relationships have been a really important piece for me within that. So that's kind of been the old the meta project. Um, yeah, I guess is, is well, a way to say it. I'm sure that the listeners to this conversing podcast realize that that is to take on a very big and central question. How did it happen? Though, say a little bit more about why you decided to work these things out largely in relationship to a younger population. That I think is a sensible move, but I'm just wanting you to kind of give a little more flesh to it. Yeah, well, it was really the practice of ministry that drew me into that. I mean, I was—I'm kind of a classic case of someone who 
had an experience when I was in high school and, and had a youth director at the time who just pulled me right into ministry. And so I started in ministry really young, running vacation Bible schools and then running middle school youth ministry programs and then was taken on to staff at Young Life when I was really you know young, a freshman in college and was like halftime staff at Young Life. And so youth ministry just became this playpen to think these ideas and to be pulled in deep into the practice of ministry. And so in some ways, it's never left me. Right. And so, you know, even when I went to Fuller in, in 97, thought, you know, I'll do an MDiv and I'll become a youth pastor and that will be great. And in many ways, I still think that's the most noble thing you could do. But then this whole idea world got a hold of me within that. So in some ways it's accidental. It just it just kind of happened. This was the locale that I was doing ministry, and, and all these questions started coming up about how is it that young people really encounter the presence of God. And, and maybe that has something to do with youth ministry, too, is that it, we, I think all of us in the practice of youth ministry have to ask this question of really what are we doing here, and are we just kind of an appendage? to socialize young people into some kind of religious commitment, or how is it that God is really involved in this? And so those were questions that just came to me in the practice of youth ministry, and it's become a real fertile ground for me to continue to think these thoughts and to find people who are, are really engaged in it. So it's both accidental and purposely, I guess I would say. Right. I'd like to come to Charles Taylor in just a minute, but let's take a little moment to talk a little bit about Ray Anderson more before you, we go on. Some people listening to this who may have been students at Fuller during the period when Ray Anderson taught here would understand instantaneously why there would be a connection between Ray Anderson and the work that you've gone on to do. But why don't you just say a little bit about him and the way that that, at least as you inferred, was one of the things that was part of your intellectual building blocks? Yeah, I mean, it really was for those of us who took Ray's lectures, and I still have, like, I'm looking at them right now, boxes of old tapes of his lectures that came through the Fuller, I don't know what it was called back then, the, the, the communications office or something that would keep all those old old lectures that were on cassette tapes. And But it was in those early morning lectures, I don't remember what time they were, 8 to 10 or something, that they were an interesting mix. And, and people who are listening in who remember those lectures, they felt in many ways like a, a real charismatic moment, like you were being not preached at, but you were hearing the Word of God preached. But mm-hmm. it was they were odd because Ray would have these really interesting kit reading packets, course notes, and he would read these notes that were mainly quotes from Bart or Tom Torrance, or, yes. you know, sometimes they would get a little ecumenical and there would be Hong's Kong uh, quotes in there or something. And then he would stop and he would just tell us stories. Yes. And he would usually tell us stories directly from the practice of ministry mm-hmm. that he did in West Covina. Mm-hmm. And he would bring these theological concepts just absolutely to life. Mm-hmm. And there was just no divide between mm-hmm. the practice of ministry and theological reflection and mm-hmm. really asking the questions of where is God active within the world. And and so that just, that got deep inside of my bones. And I, I remember specifically a day hearing a lecture and, and going out at a break and everything just kind of clicking. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I understood what it meant to think theologically. So mm-hmm. in so many ways, he was my, my midwife into that. But, you know, this book that we're kind of talking about, the Charles 
Taylor Project, my real theological contribution I'm trying to offer within it is pretty deeply connected to Ray's work, which is to really push further what he started, which is this idea that at the core of God's own being is this sense of ministry and that yes. God is a minister. And that comes right from his work and right from his work with both Bonhoeffer and Bart and his own experience and really the nobility he thought of in the practice of ministry and the office of the pastor. And so I'm trying to do some new things with that and trying to put that in different kind of cultural conversations and philosophical conversations. But yeah, the DNA of race thought is deeply lodged within my own thinking for sure. Well, I will say as a compliment to your work that when I have read what you've written at times in this book in particular, I have thought about that connection, but I didn't know that it existed. So that's that's very interesting, very, very interesting to hear. And I do want to just say for those who know the Ray Anderson story at Fuller, which is a complicated story, actually, of how he came to Fuller and, and how he was and wasn't received by some members of the faculty, his edginess and his way of speaking in these terms that you're describing about the most profound theological ideas through a lens of ministry was really one of the most remarkable contributions that he gave, and it was a consistent theme of his work over and over again. So I couldn't help but wonder when I was reading if there had been that connection. So I appreciate you making that clear. I remember at one time being in a class of his where he described, perhaps you've heard the same story, the death of his father and how he had seen him having been prepared for burial in a casket where his body had been embalmed and his face had been made up. And then he described in a way that Ray with singular capacity could do what it took to take the makeup off of his father's face and to allow him to die as the person that he was rather than the person that he had been made to appear. And that combination of grittiness and thoughtfulness and passion and embodied humanity, those themes are all woven into his work. And I think they are apparent in yours too. So again, it's one of the reasons why I'm grateful to be able to have this conversation. Did you hear that yeah. story before? Yeah, I don't remember that specifically, but mm-hmm. I, I remember similar stories yeah. to that. And maybe it was that story, but I remember him telling us at like 8 a.m. he'd read something about Kierkegaard or something and he yes. would look at us and say, for most of you, that which will kill you is already in your body. Yes. And I remember that was always <laughs> yes. a, a nice yes. way to wake up in the morning, you know, to come out of the Southern California sun and then have Ray look at you and say, you know, what is the resurrection for us? And for most of us, that's which will kill us is already in our body yes. And, yes. and that uh, still rings in my ear. Yes, 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 yes. Well, for about two years, he was a spiritual director for me, and I used to have lots of early morning breakfasts, sometimes even earlier than that 8 a.m. class. So it's just fun to hear that. For those who are not attuned to the work of Charles Taylor, why don't you take a moment, Andy, and just sort of place Charles Taylor and his contributions, because I think I want to focus on that and then move into some of the implications of his work as you are doing in this book, The Pastor in a Secular Age. Who is Charles Taylor and why should we pay attention to that? Yeah, Charles Taylor's uh, an interesting fellow for sure. I mean, he's 87 or 88 now, so he's a quite seasoned philosopher, but a unique one that crosses a lot of different kind of boundaries and barriers. But one that he holds really strong to is that he's a committed, believing person. And so he's Canadian. He's Quebecois. So he came of age in Montreal, but came of age, as he'll say, with an English name. So he kind of lived between these worlds of English-speaking Canada and then French-speaking Canada. So he kind of cut his teeth thinking about language and what language meant for us. And then, of course, wrote 
epic books about what it means to be a self and how Western society creates the self. But then his big project here that I've been in dialogue with, he just continues to do things. So, you know, you'd almost say the, the final project of his career, but he's continuing to work. He wrote this book called A Secular Age, which won the Templeton Prize in, in 2007. So, kind of awarded as one of these great philosophical pieces. And it's a book that I tell my own students, um, probably the first philosophy book written in the 21st century that will be read in the 22nd century and maybe even dissertations written about it. It's quite an epic book, but it's also an intimidating book. It's 700 pages that will keep your door open on a very windy day and you know, protect you if someone throws a rock at you mm-hmm. on the street or something. Mm-hmm. It's quite a thick book, but it's a book that he's only trying to answer one question, which also makes it quite intimidating, 700 pages to answer one question. But the question is a profound one, and I think a fundamental one for people in ministry. And his question is, why was it, if you were just to rewind a short 500 years and go back to 1500, why was it nearly impossible to find anyone in the Western world who didn't believe in God? I mean, it was hard to find such people. Such Mm -hmm. people existed, but they were hard to find. Where now, of course, you go a short 500 years forward, and I'm short in the sense of our historical breath, and not only can you find someone who doesn't believe in God, but the kind of script is completely flipped. And now it's easier to find people who don't believe in God or have big questions about God. than do believe in God. So he tries to trace that history, and it's quite profound. So he does that both as a philosopher deeply in kind of the unfolding of intellectual history, particularly Western philosophical history, but then also does that as a believing Catholic in what that means for him. And it ends up to be a really unique piece of work that kind of feels like every time you wade through those 700 pages, you find new treasures within it. So I tried to be in dialogue with that in this series that I have with Baker called Ministry in a Secular Age and and try to bring that particularly to the practice of ministry, because I think there's some things that Taylor is saying about what it feels like to live in this age that I think particularly people in ministry and maybe even even more so or directly Protestant ministers can feel and maybe haven't had the words to. So I'm trying to, to front some of Taylor's language to give us a, a sense of, in a language of our own, of what this feels like to try to be doing ministry in, in mm-hmm. this time. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think strikes me about Taylor's work and that is also part of your work is that it is trying to give an account of this, these sets of qualities and factors that now so vividly and permeatingly describe and are embodied every day in the secularity. Why don't you describe a little bit more about what he's talking about in that 500-year shift? What comprises, what are some of the most key elements from Taylor's point of view about secularity that are the ones that then become the stuff out of which your reflections, I think, are rising. Yeah, well, I think the probably the, the best way to start is kind of backwards, where he gets us to kind of where we are now, and and he just really kind of thinks when it comes to the way we've talked about what it means to live in a secular age that there's been quite a bit of slippage, and and you can kind of feel this as you're talking to denominational officials or to leaders in large churches that we will often say things like, oh, yeah, well, you know, this is the effect of living in a secular age. And and the more we talk, it feels like we're saying the same thing, but it also feels like there's some slippage and that we might mean different things when Mm -hmm. we say secular. And so he really wants to be clear about what does it actually mean to live in a secular age. And so he unpacks that. And I I think it's really quite relevant for us because he, first of all, says, you know, one way to think about the secular is just simply a divide between public and private. 
in that most often people assume that their religious life, their faith life is a private thing, and don't assume that we bring God into too many public realms, or we get uncomfortable with that. You know, right. for instance, on an airplane, if the pilot was ever to get on the plane and say, you know, I just want everyone to know that I've prayed for our flight, and right. it feels like <laughs> there will be no, you know, demons interfering with our flight. Mm -hmm. Just wanted you all to know that as we, you know, climbed to 30,000 feet, most of us, even believing people would be pretty freaked out by that. And so he's saying that there's obviously been this divide between public and private, and that has some gains. It also has some losses. But the way we usually tend to think, and he calls that secular one, and he says, you know, the way we usually think about secular, especially I think those of us who are working in Protestant institutions, we tend to think about it in what he calls secular two, which is a loss of people and members in religious communities. So Mm -hmm. the way I tend to think about it is this anxiety that fewer and fewer people are going to church. Mm -hmm. And I think we do see this as the kind of driving definition of what it means for most people, or what most people assume it means to live in a secular age, that we're really worried about the strength of our institutions as it appears fewer and fewer people are going to church, or at least that it feels like we have less connection to the resources that maybe past generations had within the church. And he does think that's an issue. And, and particularly for people probably listening to this podcast, if you are the pastor of a church or leading a denomination, those are real issues. Or the president of a seminary or a faculty mm-hmm. member at a, at a mainline seminary, particularly, you're very aware of how many resources have been lost or access to resources have been lost over the last few generations, but he doesn't actually think that's what it means to live in a secular age. And what he thinks it ultimately means to live in a secular age is that we find ourselves in a context where all belief becomes contested and therefore fragilized, that we all become aware that we could be living a different life, or we know our neighbors who don't believe at all are trying to raise their kids and get money in their 401ks just like we are. Mm -hmm. And so our beliefs can easily become fragilized. Mm -hmm. But what's so fascinating about Taylor is he thinks that fragilization works both ways. And this is what I find just so fascinating about him is he thinks that if you're a believing person in this kind of secular age, you can't help but be thrust into doubt, that you can't help but thinking, maybe I only believe this because this is the family I was raised in, or maybe this is just an evolutionary trick and this is just false pattern recognition. That's all religion is. But it works the other way as well for Taylor. He thinks that sometimes all believers get thrust into doubt, but he also thinks that all doubters sometimes get pushed into belief. So those people in West Hollywood or in Old Town, Pasadena, that sometimes they're very sure they don't believe, but sometimes they too get thrust in their unbelief becomes fragilized. And sometimes they find themselves believing, like when they hear that Bach recital on Christmas Eve or Mm -hmm. when they hold their child from the first time, that something bigger grabs them. So he really wants to talk about what it means to live in this age where belief becomes really difficult, but it also is really possible. And how do we kind of navigate Mm -hmm. that world? Mm -hmm. So I just find that really quite fascinating about his work. Mm -hmm. So he shows us that it does become quite hard for pastors to continue to point to a transcendent quality to life, to God being active, especially in some of the common organized forms of religion that other generations articulated that, but it's still there, that Mm -hmm. there's still a yearning for that. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a real beckoning for us to, I think, think deeply about it. Well, I think what you're describing for me was a permeating experience when I was living in Berkeley for the better part of 25 or 30 years, because Berkeley is a place that feels like it straddles all three levels of this secularity that Taylor describes. And in particular, this sense of the fragilized character of it. And 
it's one of the reasons why during that time I started a book, which I haven't ever yet finished, called Skeptical Believing Possibilities for Knowing the God You're Not Sure Exists. And the reason for writing that book is that it lands in that very zone that you're describing. Now, what was fascinating to me when I was writing regularly on this, I would tend to go to a certain cafe for at least part of the day. And in that, you know, I naturally began to have conversations with people in this secular cafe who knew nothing about me, nothing about what I was writing about, no idea about my role as a pastor then or anything. But gradually we would talk about what are you doing? And I would explain that I was writing a book on doubt and the possibilities of faith, even though that is also such a contingent problem for many people. And it was almost truly without exception that people would say, I feel like I live exactly there in between faith and doubt every single day. So it just became, for me, an example of, I think, the accuracy of Taylor's analysis and the various reasons for how that plays, which really does affect all of us, I think, every day. So tell me, does that example that I just gave reflect what you're saying Taylor's on about? No example is a perfect one, but does it does that yeah, intersect in your it's view? It's a great example of living between that kind of belief and doubt and what he actually thinks is the necessity of that, that this becomes kind of the right. faithful way of living in this age is to try to hold on to those two things. Right, right. I'm Mark Laberton. You're listening to Conversing, a production of Fuller Studio. So as you try to then work that out, you're doing so on a broad stage, really. I realize very much that your work is written because you're seeing all ministry as ministry. And in that sense, the things that you're writing about are things that pertain across a a broad swath of life and culture, not just for youth. But for those who might have tuned in partly because of an interest in the connections between Taylor and youth ministry, say a little bit about how you think this intersects, particularly with teenagers or young adults. Yeah, I think the real place that we see this, and again, I think this kind of bleeds over categories, but I think where we see it with young people or maybe where a youth worker can really see this this reality come home is that Taylor thinks that where we're at now then in this kind of secular three-age where belief becomes fragilized and doubt just accompanies us as we go, is he thinks that we live in what he calls the age of authenticity. And he's really interesting, again, I mean, this is what I think really frustrates people about Taylor, but also for some of us really draws us to him is that he's just so ironic that he will not he always respects other perspectives so he'll never just kind of out of hand say well that's bad or that's Mm -hmm. a bad perspective and Mm -hmm. this is the good one so when he goes to this age of authenticity he thinks we're in it and what it is is it's it's actually bound in a kind of certain moral vision that there's a sense of a good and he calls this the ethic of authenticity and he actually gave lectures in about 1991 that have been published as the ethics of authenticity and what he believes is that we're in a time where the most important or highest good we have is finding our own unique way of being human, Mm -hmm. and that there's an ethic that says no other human being should tell another human being what it means for them to be human. And so then that means that we're all on our kind of own pursuit to find our unique way of being human, and that supposedly live with this ethic that we should not violate someone else's journey to find this unique way of being who they are. 
but it also then means that we have an authority, and the new authority is that we should really only follow what speaks to us. And if it doesn't speak to us and therefore have credibility on our own journey for our own unique self, then it's not something worth following. And I think most youth workers can kind of sense mm-hmm. and, and they can smell that the aura yes. of the ethic of authenticity and, mm-hmm. and the age of authenticity with younger generations of people, with young people. And I don't think it just stays with them. I actually think, you know, parents have that kind of same disposition as well. But it really is something that I think young people are trying on and trying to figure out. And of course, now we live in a a social media world where you can really find others and find those perspectives and find some of those platforms to work out your own unique way of being yourself. But And Taylor believes this is a game, that there's some gains in this, that we really respect people's ability to articulate what it means for them to be human. And so we shouldn't be negative towards that. But it also does come with some excesses. And it comes with some kind of senses of curating your own self is the most important thing. Or, yeah, the more Instagram followers you have, the more you're winning at life or something. So that becomes an issue of how we think this through, what it means to even do faith formation inside of an age of authenticity and where the ethic of authenticity is really strong. Just this week, I was reading an interesting article about a woman who has a very prominent online persona. And like many people, apparently, she has tried to broaden her persona to include aspects of her personal life. But it turns out in this particular case that the only thing that her Facebook or or rather social media audience is really interested in is actually her fashion life. (laughs) They show no interest in it moving from her fashion life to her personal life. And when she tries to make that step the statistics just collapsed. But the moment she comes back showing photographs just of herself wearing clothes, suddenly the numbers go high. So it's this sense of curating yourself in this very particularized way where really people only want to see her dressed up in certain ways and how it is that she's going to make herself notable because of that. It feels like a hyper-specialized version of this curation that you're describing. And it's a very powerful tool and a powerful cultural psychological tool that's beneath the technological one. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's amazing how, how powerful that's become. And so, you know, it would it would be, <laughs> I'm sure uh, Taylor would not be interested in this, but it would be, you know, he's writing this in the, in somewhere in the early 2000s, published in 2007. So it'd be interesting to update some of those things now in a, in a world with smartphones and, and with social media sites, for sure. So when you think about the implications of a culture that is built on this kind of quest for authenticity and the challenges and opportunities that it presents, when you think theologically, what are the challenges, but what are the opportunities that you think are there? Well, yeah, the opportunity that's there is we do, there is this real openness for people to express the depth of their experience Mm -hmm. and to articulate their experience. And I think that's a good, that's a societal good. I think that's good for the church that people feel free to articulate that. I would almost want to take a turn even deeper and kind of embed it in a broad kind of sense of an evangelical sensibility that there is this openness for you to talk about your encounter with the presence or the absence of God. And that's that becomes a valuable locale to think mm-hmm. and to reflect. And mm-hmm. so the age of authenticity does lead us to have to ask questions about how it is that we as a community or we as a people encounter the living presence of God, mm-hmm. or maybe even encounter the absence of God and how to make sense of that. So that becomes the real gain. And so it, to me, it does then drive us 
into hopefully an embrace of, of personhood in a deeper level and mm-hmm. even looking at the encounter with persons and their experience and their articulation of their experience as a way to peer deeper in mm-hmm. for the act of God and mm-hmm. for and for God's movement within mm-hmm. that and for mm-hmm. us to, to seek for that and, and to do something that Ray Anderson wanted so many years ago for our dogmatic and doctrinal commitments to also live and to breathe in people's lives. And so I think we are in a space where people want that. The problem just becomes and what, where it can become a real challenge is that we can have this sense that the only authority that then has anything to say to me is some authority that's embedded within me and that right. there isn't something greater or better that exists outside of me. And I think that's one of the things that Taylor worries about with this is that that is our highest sense of what it means to live a good life, to have a full life. He really does want to respect people, that all people have some kind of implicit sense of what it means for them to live a full life. And, and any minister or pastor should be open to hearing that and to exploring that. But there can become this kind of very almost Luther sense of sin where we become turned in on ourselves, mm-hmm. that the only thing worth living is kind of curating in, in a self, like the article you were mentioning. Mm-hmm. And I think we do really long for as human beings for something outside of us to call us to something bigger, some purpose beyond us. And so there's both the opportunity to speak about the depth of experience, but also the danger that we can become kind of myopically pulled in on ourselves or within our own tribe of people who believes just what we believe. So there's both the opportunity for openness and also the possibility that openness can drive us into a kind of closeness and an insularness. So explain a little bit about how you think this works in relationship to just the idols of self that are so permeating in our culture. So in a way, the extreme version of understanding what Taylor's describing, and I'm not attributing this to Taylor, just to his description of it, is a sense that in a way the self and the curation of the self can easily become the, the very best but potentially even exclusive good in the world. At least there's that kind of abuse to which it can be aimed. So it doesn't just mean it potentially raises questions about what to do about the presence or activity of a God who might in some way intersect with our lives, but even the presence or claim of a neighbor, a friend, a spouse, a child, an enemy neighbor. How are the claims of anything other than self ever called meaningfully in question in the kind of secularity that he's describing? Yeah, I think that's the very challenge is that it can definitely spin into that kind of closeness. So it's really fascinating. I mean, one of the concepts and one of the things that makes, you know, kind of nerdy people like me love reading Taylor is he makes up these concepts and these words, you know, like these. Yeah. So something like the imminent frame he talks about. So he thinks that we inherit as opposed to our ancestors, say, in medieval Christendom, who inherited a supernatural frame where they would just, weird phenomenon would happen, they would assume that it was a spirit or it was God, or there was at least some kind of transcendent quality behind even, say, the natural world or something. He thinks now we inherit an imminent frame where we tend to assume things are natural and material, and it becomes harder for us inside the frame that we kind of see the world to think of things as transcendent. But he even thinks inside of that we have choices in that we can live in a reductive way, which he calls a kind of closed spin. And that's where you start to really see Taylor's own commitments of faith, where he thinks it actually is a lot of work to continue to spin things closed. Or we can have what he calls an open take, be open to the possibilities that there's something beyond our own self beckoning and calling out Mm -hmm. to us. Mm -hmm. And so I think that becomes the real challenge in the context of ministry is how do we 
take communities into kind of open takes? How do we help them yearn for and listen to and be open to the possibility that this is a God who speaks and that mm-hmm. this God still speaks and calls out to us? How can we hear that inside of a imminent frame that tends to tell us almost kind of de facto without us even being aware of it, that such things are ludicrous mm-hmm. and such things can happen. Mm-hmm. But yet then we have these experiences, which the age of authenticity opens us up to. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we do have experiences mm-hmm. that feel so full that they take us out of ourselves. And so I just think a big challenge of the practice of ministry is how we move into those things. And one of the ultimate challenges is when we don't have a community that can lean into those open takes and all we have is the curation of the self, Mm -hmm. a really odd thing starts to occur where we think that if we could live without needing to correlate to some kind of law or some kind of authority outside of ourselves, some even kind of transcendent divine authority outside of ourselves that would have all sorts of freedom and we would escape guilt. But I think what we're actually discovering and what Taylor kind of points to and other commentators and philosophers who have worked off Taylor have pointed to is that it actually doesn't work that way. And the more you have to cure it to self, the more guilty you become. You feel guilty. You feel like you're not using your time in the right way to curate the self. Like if only you would have finished that degree or Mm -hmm. only if you could go to a yoga class more often, or only if you were able to read the books. I mean, you can buy all Tolstoy's books, but you've never been able to read them. And, right. and so you, you have the, the New York Times and the Washington Post app, but you never really have time to actually read those stories and to know them. And you know every parenting technique, and you have access to it on your favorite blogs or your favorite websites, but you never really have the time to implement those things. And you end up becoming guilty to the fact that you can't curate and be the self that you want it to be. And it's a particular depressing kind of trap to be in as a late modern person, because now that we only have the only authority is within us, and then we become guilty to our own selves, but our only authority is inside the self. We have nothing from outside us to Mm -hmm. actually forgive us and Mm -hmm. to release us from maybe shame and to lead us into a process of reconciliation. So Taylor thinks that we always have to honor people's internal experience, but he also wants to remind us that we are not the kind of being who are just internally constituted. Mm -hmm. And he thinks that all the way back to what I referenced at the beginning of how he cut his own philosophical teeth. He said, you know, that we are language animals. We are the kind of beings that need language. And because of that, we need others. We need neighbors Mm -hmm. and we need spouses and children and enemies that we hear from, that we enter into discourse from, that this is what opens us up to Mm -hmm. something bigger and something deeper. And so I tried to follow that thread and then move that into more direct kind of theological, incarnational language, more Christological language as we think about it. It gives us both a way of affirming our unique humanity, but reminding us that we're not just closed within ourselves. Mm -hmm. So just to use two contexts of ministry as an example of places where some of this could intersect, talk a little bit about the role of public worship in a person whose life is being lived out of this secularity and they find themselves out of their own self-curation or whatever, motivated to come to a context of public worship. What is it that they're doing, first of all? But then secondly, if you were the person responsible for those kinds of experiences, in light of what you're saying, what would you be especially attuned to or how might it affect what you would do? 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think, and I, you know, I would imagine more research needs to be done on actually what people are bringing into those experiences, and obviously it probably has a lot to do with what tradition you're in and things like yes. that. But I mean, just broadly, it feels like you can either go into those public worship experiences and think, I'm looking for resources to work on myself, and mm-hmm. so I want to hear sermons that help me work on myself. I want to have some kind of emotional experience that makes me feel good about my life or gives me some kind of handles on what to do when I go into my life. So I'm looking for some kind of resources in the programs around the, the public worship service. I want my family and my kids to feel connected to them. I want them to, to enjoy those. And not all those things are bad. Some of those things are really good. But that would be one way that we try to kind of draw people in is that the public worship service becomes a way to, to continue to curate the self. It becomes a resource to do that. I am a little bit more skeptical of that. I hope what our public worship experiences are are gatherings where we really try to discern the living God speaking to us and what that means, that it becomes an experience, to use Taylor's language, of an open take where we, where we together as a community – listen for God's word, listen for that which is outside of us to call us to something else. But those become very distinct kind of ways forward within that. And and I think that the pastor, I mean, this, this second volume of these, the pastor in a secular age really tries to trace how this kind of secular age imposes itself on just, I guess, the identity of the pastor right. or kind of even the metaphor of what we think of the pastor. And I think in a disenchanted age, which Taylor uses that concept from Max Weber, the sociologist, and kind of adapts it in some ways, but this kind of age we're in where it's harder for us to imagine that there are transcendent realities or demonic realities where we forget these things, that even in medieval Christendom, that church bells weren't just to keep time, but they were rung to keep the devils and the demons away from the village. And But now we inherit what he calls this disenchanted age. And I think sometimes when you're leading public worship, at least I know this with my own students, sometimes the disenchantment falls on the shoulder of the pastor even more than on her people. Mm -hmm. And she feels almost like when she takes the sacraments or mounts the pulpit, wonders what is she doing? Mm -hmm. And and how do these acts Mm -hmm. take people into a divine reality? Mm -hmm. And does she even believe that as a pastor? Mm -hmm. And I think that becomes a real struggle for us, that this kind of secular age thrusts this kind of doubt even upon the pastor, Mm -hmm. which is what I find so important about Ray Anderson's work and what I've tried to continue from that is we really have to find ways that we can point to concretely and witness to concretely where we testify that that Jesus Christ is active and is moving. And so, yeah, I think that becomes, I think the public worship space can become a kind of experience of what Taylor calls cross-pressure, where you feel crossed up. And I think pastors feel this often, like, Uh well, okay, what is this really doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk about social media, so a tweet from someone on Sunday, a pastor on Sunday that said, you know, yeah, I try not for this to hurt my feelings, but my little church with 30 people, when there are three of them that talk through my sermon and four of them that sleep and two that yawn the whole time, it's, it's hard for it not to hurt my feelings or mm-hmm. it's hard for mm-hmm. me to wonder what am I doing here? Mm-hmm. And so I think mm-hmm. this becomes a, a, a challenge for, for some of us. The congregation that I served when I was in Berkeley was a church that had clear glass walls. And because of all the demonstrations that are notoriously a part of Berkeley life, I often used to envision when I would be standing in the pulpit that there were a classic group of Berkeley protesters holding up a sign that was every week asking the same question, which was basically, how dare you? And it was really a question raised about the whole enterprise, as it were, that was going on inside the sanctuary. Like, how dare you gather, name the things that you're naming, 
assert that you believe and trust in this reality that you seek to help make something known and that you are fostering it in multiple generations and across cultures and races and genders. And you are believing and daring to somehow assert that there is a God who still speaks in this world. But it felt to me like that moment distilled for me every week when I was preaching, I think what you just described, which is this mm. feeling that the gauntlet is implicitly and explicitly thrown down. And the question then becomes for the pastor, as well as for the congregation, for the community at large to determine in what possible way and with what possible understanding or claims do we dare to enter into this enterprise called the exercise of public Christian worship, which has got to be one of the most outlandish things that happens in a town like Berkeley every week, even though it's not obviously received in that way. To me, it's in a way the greatest assault on the assumptions of a community like Berkeley in its fundamental character, acknowledging that we are inside that world, not that we're outside it, which was one of the gifts of a clear glass-walled sanctuary, because it felt like this is not about them. This is really a statement about us. It's not as though we live in a surreal bubble. It's that we are living inside a context where we are as affected by the secularity that, that Taylor's describing as anyone else. And at the same time, we are exercising this sort of outlandish act. Yeah, that's what I, again, find so remarkable about his work is that he does not want to say that this is those people and not us. Those yes. are sec they're secular people and there's believing people. We're right. all, in his way of defining the secular, we're all secular people. Right. But yet, even inside of this, there are ways to believe and really profound ways to believe. And, you know, he makes a wager, too, that a life of faith just might be more beautiful. I mean, he's willing to be open that he could be wrong, but it may be a more beautiful way to live. And he thinks that it gives us a journey into visions and more beautiful realities. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's quite fascinating. I mean, for Taylor, always the winner for him is the poet. The poet is always the, it gives us a sign. The poet is witness that the reductions sometimes of this imminent frame just can't be. And so you, you can impose that. I think he is a Catholic, the poet becomes important, but I think as Protestants, we can think of the preacher becomes really quite mm -hmm. important in this kind of poetic act of speaking of a living God of mm -hmm. helping people imagine and take on an, an imagination that this God acts in their concrete life, this God still speaks to them, mm -hmm. and yet helps them discern that, and mm -hmm. which is always, I think, a, a major challenge. And inside this kind of secular age, pastoral ministry and discernment will be always fused together, and as much for the leader as for uh, the rest of the congregational members. Andy, when you think about the implications of Taylor for the era that we're in right now, where there is so much evidence of, I will call it, hyper-intensive religious speech by some people of who are spiritually, theologically quite conservative, who would want to represent their religious speech in a secular, by that I just mean public context, and yet their speech represents more secularity than religion. At least that would be one way of reading it. Do you want to interact with that at all? I'm just curious if you've thought about that? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think what Taylor would say is that those kind of perspectives, like you were mentioning, becomes just as reductionistic as, I mean, I think he thinks that those who aren't kind of 
thrown into a fragilization or those who deny fragilization, that there's just very few people who aren't. And kind of religious fundamentalists on one side, kind of North American religious fundamentalists on one side seem somehow to be immune to doubt. And then maybe on the far other side or something like, you know, British New Atheists or something right. who also never seem to have their doubt fragilized. I think he thinks both of those folks are kind of in the same boat in yes. they're not quite acknowledging the depth of the human experience mm-hmm. and that in many ways that you have to default. I mean, I guess this is more my take, but in both those kinds of perspectives, you have to default out of the mystery and possibility of a personal God who still speaks and moves within history, the God of Israel who arrives and shows up. And so that to me becomes essential for us in the context of ministry is, do we still have a theology that imagines and even experiences a God who arrives speaking in words of salvation to us? Andy, I think the thing that I so respect about your project is that you're willing, by various guides and Taylor being one of those, to open up a field of both experience and thought that I think is really critical. And it does pervade our lives, whether people know these categories or know Taylor or think in these terms normally or not. The experience, the existential experience that you're describing, I think I would agree with Taylor, is is far more common than not. And I just have to say that I think that what you're writing is a project that that is one that asks some of the most important questions. And I I wanna say thank you again for the work that you're doing. And I'm just very grateful for this relatively brief taste of your work and a chance for people to hear you reflect a bit about it. But I'm very thankful for what you're doing. And I hope that as you keep doing this, that you will keep raising these really important questions and a mirror really for the potential of individual and community understanding about the crisis of the moment and the potential of the moment and the question of the presence of God in the middle of all that. So I I really thank you. Oh, thank you. It's been an honor to talk with you, and, and thanks for including me. You've been listening to a production of Fuller Studio. Fuller Studio provides articles, podcasts, videos, and other resources for a deeply formed spiritual life. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit us at fuller.edu slash studio.